the Lord would say to us, prove all things. Amen. Hold fast that which is good. Amen. He would say to us, produce your cause, right. saith the Lord of hosts. Amen. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the King of Jacob. Amen. And so we want to bring forth a few reasons as to why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. If you were raised in a Christian home, you don't even know why I'm preaching this sermon. So I just gave you two Bible reasons as to why I'm doing it. In addition to those Bible reasons, you will run into people who may not believe the Bible the same way that you believe it, and you ought to know how to show them. But I want to make one thing perfectly clear. There's no amount of reasons that can be mustered, nor eloquence in presenting them, that can give a man a new heart to have faith to see spiritual things. God must open the heart and give spiritual understanding For the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to natural men. There is no way to convince an atheist. That's why in the Bible, atheists are ignored. Let them go to hell where they can meet God. There isn't one second wasted in the Bible on atheists. The Bible prays for deliverance from atheists. Because if you're an atheist and you don't believe in the existence of God... You're so ignorant, you're not capable of understanding anything. That's what the Bible says. It says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. The Bible says that a man who doesn't believe in the existence of God is an unreasonable man. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. The Bible says the natural creation is so plain that all men are without excuse in knowing there's a God. And anyone that thinks there isn't a God, after all the evidence he's given, deserves to end up where they end up in Romans chapter 1, and that's in bed with the wrong sex. Right. Amen. Amen. I can't change men's hearts, and neither will you, by learning these arguments, but these arguments are to confirm our faith in the Word of God, that as at least one person, or maybe two, said tonight, that when we open its pages, we're more convinced than ever that it's God's Word to us. Right. And the weight of its word comes into our souls more forcefully than before. I'm going to leave fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy is a subject that is so big, you could spend weeks and weeks and months and months on fulfilled prophecy. There's hundreds, there are thousands of prophecies that have been fulfilled, and that's a study in and of itself, but I've given you several of the big ones. The outline will contain more And you need to pick a few of your favorites if you ever run into someone that's doubting whether the Bible is the Word of God. And you are going to find Christians in your lifetime in this country that will doubt that the Bible is the Word of God because of so much effort made in our public institutions and by the media and from our government that the Bible isn't really the Word of God. And if you have a few ways to bolster their faith from the Word of God, may the Lord be praised. Amen. I am going to go very fast because I don't want to be on this for very long. I'm already going longer than I said I would go, and that's by several requesting me to quit cheating them. So, but I'm going to go fast. I've raised one argument as to why I believe the Bible. It's fulfilled prophecy. Argument number two, because of its wisdom. There is no book in the world like the Bible. You know what the psalmist would say, and I want to tell you there's two psalms that are very precious to me right now. And if you want to meditate on some good psalms in light of what your pastor is preaching to you, it is Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Psalm 19, 
the law of the Lord is perfect. Those are not just words for a cute little chorus. The law of the Lord is perfect. Wisdom. What would, would it take a whole sermon? Would it take a series of messages on the law of God to show the wisdom of the Bible? The law of God, the law of Moses, written in 1500 B.C., when the world did not know of laws like Moses gave the children of Israel. What law would you want to consider? The laws of self-defense? Do you remember the laws where in the Bible, if a man is found in your house breaking up in the middle of the night, and in the, in the darkness when you can't see him and he's stealing something out of your house, you take his life, that God says, that's understandable. You had an adrenaline rush. You couldn't see if he had deadly means in his disposal or not. He was in your house in the middle of the night. You have children there. That's fine. The next verse says, if you find him the next day and he's selling your stuff at, a, at the jockey lot, that you can't kill him. Is that wisdom? Amen. That is wonderful wisdom. Where'd that come from in 1500 B.C.? Brethren, it takes a whole series on the law of God. Right. How about the cities of refuge? I just got to give you a few. Oh, yes. th- cities of refuge. Yep. Because the Lord understands the heat that would result if a relative of yours was killed by someone else, even if it was an accident that you did not see clearly, there was a city of refuge for that person that accidentally killed someone to flee to that city where you could be protected and get a fair trial. Seven of those cities were provided for in Israel. How about the laws of restitution? If you want to steal from someone, then you can go to work until you can pay it back four or seven times, depending on the situation and the circumstances. How about the laws of the treatment of the poor and strangers and servants and slaves and handmaidens? They were all provided for in the law of God. How about the laws of consanguinity? 1500 B.C. Other nations weren't observing them. What? The, the laws of consanguinity. That's what hillbillies do when they get involved with first cousins and nephews and nieces and sisters and brothers. That's where we get the image of the violation of the laws of consanguinity. Consanguinity is sexual relationships or marriage with too close a kin. And where'd that come from in the Bible? It's laid out very carefully in the laws of our nation. Follow it. We could go on and on, but it requires a series, and I'm not going to do that because there's more to say under the Bible being proven as the Word of God by its wisdom. First of all, you look at the law of Moses and you say, what other nations were in existence at this time? Well, the empire that ruled the world was Egypt, which had no light. And we're going to get to that in a minute if the Lord's merciful with the clock. We'll get to that in a minute. No light at all. How about the wisdom of Proverbs? Let's leave the law of Moses. The wisdom of the book of Proverbs. How about the advice that's in there given from a father to a son about strange women? Is it good advice? Men. Men. Is it sound advice? Is it sober? Does it get right, cut right to the chase? Does it get to the point? Does it describe the weakness of the human heart? Does it describe women and what they do and how they move men and how they increase the transgressors among men? Is it all there? Wisdom in the book of Proverbs. How about the description of the virtuous woman? Is it pretty well written in very few words in Proverbs chapter 31? How about dealing with employers, with servants, with sureties, with government, with those that correct you? The book of Proverbs is full of wisdom. Show me another. Listen, go read the Koran. Exhaust yourself. Read it from cover to cover and find me enough wisdom in that book to equal one proverb. Right. True. 
I've been there. Have you been there? I know how safe I am in telling you this. It's unbelievable. Go read the Hindu Vedas. You'll get so confused and convoluted in your mind before you get off the first page, you will not know where you've been. You'll wonder if you exist because the person that wrote it doesn't know if they exist. They don't know if right now they're an elephant, an eel, or a human. They are so confused. Well, listen, when when you subscribe to the stuff that they do, it is confusion. It is darkness. When the Bible says, if they speak not according to this law, it is because there is no light in them, believe the verse. Amen. Don't think that God's exaggerating. Believe the verse. Do you want to read what Mary Baker Eddy wrote in Science and Health? The mother of Christian science. Go read it. You've heard about the Church of Christ Scientology today? Go read some of their writings. Wisdom. The Bible is proven to be the Word of God by the wisdom that it conveys in its pages. How about what it tells us on child training alone? The wisdom in the Bible about child training. What it tells us that we ought to start early, that we ought not to heed the crying, and that child training is the proof of love. Now, the natural mind does not think that way. The natural mind thinks that not to touch your child is the proof of love because we have that all over our nation. Kids, you can't beat them. But you look in the Word of God, and there is wisdom, and it worked in this nation in previous generations when it was practiced. Just look at child training. You look at Bible economics and all that the Bible has to say on economics, what it has about spending too much, what it has about savings. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. You'll never read anything good like that in the Koran. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Did you know that the Bible tells us to get down on our face and our hands and knees in the grass, pull the grass apart and watch ants? Proverbs chapter 6, because ants work hard and they save up for winter. And the Bible tells us we can learn from the ants. And on and on it goes with Bible economics, how to give to support the poor. Give to support those that can return the favor to you in spiritual things. Give to support those in time of need by saving the laws of economics. All in the Bible. How about the vanity of life? How about a book like Ecclesiastes? Where's a book of philosophy like the book of Ecclesiastes? Where? That in just a few chapters, in a few words, that's another proof, brethren, it's brevity. Do you know how you know God's behind a book when he can get so much accomplished in so few words? You know that I'm not God, don't you? (laughs) And and I I say that to me, I say that for you to think. I'm telling you, I have never read a book that's even close to the Bible in conciseness and brevity. The Bible can say things in so few words and it is so powerful and so full of meaning. But that, that's another point. We're, we're still on wisdom. The philosophy of Ecclesiastes in a few short chapters can talk about the vanity of life, the brevity of life, the vexation of life, laying up things for future generations, the folly of exalting wisdom, the folly of exalting folly, all of it in a few chapters. Right. Find it anywhere else. And, and brethren, oh, there's books that have been written on philosophy, but they don't have a bottom line. They get lost because they don't know the answers. Do you know, this little book of Ecclesiastes works its way up and you're starting to think, oh, it looks pretty hopeless. Then he gets to the end. And there is an awesome conclusion. Let us hear the conclusion. You can't read that in other books. You don't get to a place where you get to read, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. There isn't a book like that. Right. 
One. It's the Bible. It's proven to be God's word by the wisdom that it conveys. Listen, the Bible teaches men to love their wives as their own bodies. For if they'll do that, they'll receive the greater reward from kindness and love rather than force and cruelty. That isn't how natural men think. But it's contained in the word. I could go on and on with wisdom. We could spend six weeks, six months on just the law of God. Six weeks or six months preaching through Proverbs. But I give you Ephesians chapter 5, which sets Christianity apart from other religions in the way women are treated. I want to remind every woman in this assembly and every woman that ever hears these tapes that no matter how chauvinistic I may sound in the light of this incorrect society that we live in, Christianity frees women, protects women, honors women, and causes men to love and to treat them better than any other system that has ever been found in the history of the world. If you think your lot is tough, I will send you some links on the Koran and Muhammad's Sunnah so that you can read what it's like to be a woman in Arabia. If you don't like Arabian women the way they're treated, I'll send you to the Hindus. Remember, they're nonviolent people. See, if you're a Hindu woman and your husband dies, guess what you get to do if you're very devout? You get to burn yourself to death on your husband's body. Now, isn't that precious? The Bible liberates women, and it elevates women. It makes them equal to us in spiritual matters. Men, the Bible does say that. 1 Peter 3, 7, it commands men to remember it at all times. And it tells men to love their wives and to cherish them and nourish them as their own bodies, as the Lord does the church. It elevates women. What a wise book. We move on. Because of its sublimity. The Bible is proven to be God's word because it is so sublime. Right. You cannot read passages like this in any other book. You cannot read a one-sentence definition of love, like 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 like you can in the Bible. There's nothing to compare to it in all the writings of men. If anyone was to ever live, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, diligently, and if a group of people were to live 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 diligently, it is the panacea for all problems between people. One sentence, one sentence, 15 phrases, describes love in the most sublime way that it's been described defined and explained all in a sentence and applied all in one sentence. There is no sentence like that in any other book but the Word of God. What author could conceive of defining love in one sentence the way that God did in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7? For many, many years, 2,000, men have wondered at the golden rule how Jesus Christ in about 12 words, could teach the finest way of dealing with other people. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule. Incredible, the sublimity of the Word of God, how sublime it is in the incredible statements it makes about how to treat one another in the golden rule. How about the Good Samaritan? Is that a sublime story where a lawyer wanting to avoid his responsibility of taking care of his neighbor and fulfilling the second commandment would say, who is my neighbor? And Jesus Christ would give the story of the Good Samaritan. And you read that story and realize 
that the Samaritans and the Jews were enemies and that Jesus Christ in a sublime little story has taught that we ought to love our enemies when we chance across them in times of need. Sublime. Where do stories like that, where can you find them teaching such an elevated principle of loving your enemies and loving your neighbors and destroying all thoughts of bigotry, revenge, and hatred in such a clear and simple way? Right. What work of literature, philosophy, or religion can be compared to the Psalms? Now, I'm not going to lay these arguments out in front of every natural man because natural men couldn't read the Psalms and get anything out of them anyway. But brethren, you all know what I'm talking about, don't you? Amen. Ever been in need, ever felt lonely and laid down with the Psalms? Mm -hmm. Propped up on one elbow and just read a few Psalms? Did the Lord come to you and speak to you? Was it sublime? Some of those words written by the psalmist, written by God for you? What book gives wisdom in such short little statements as the book of Proverbs? I'm not talking about its wisdom. I'm talking about its sublimity, how sublime it is, how short and beautiful and precious and exalted and elevated its thoughts are. That's what I mean by the word sublime. How about the Song of Solomon? Is that an elevated love story? Sublime? You've never heard of a scheme of salvation like the one that's in the Word of God. You want to talk about sublime? God died for man. That is sublime. That is above sublime. It's unspeakable, the Apostle Paul would say. And that's what the Bible tells. There is no doctrine of salvation like that. Doctrine of salvation for a Muslim? Do all you can. Hope for the best. We don't know. You might have to go to hell for a while. If you die in Hihad... In a holy war, you might get to go straight there. Sublimity? Women? You don't know. Chances are you're not going to make it. How about a plan of salvation where God dies for man in order to save him from a certain death, and it's all of grace without works? There's never been a plan of salvation that is all of grace without works. Sublime? It is too good to be sublime. A savior? that when he died, asked for the forgiveness of those that were crucifying him? That's a sublime hero. There's no book like that. We believe the Bible is the word of God, not only because of its wisdom and its sublimity, but because of its history. Its history. Did you know that the Bible explains things in a way that we can know the history of the world for the 6,000 years that man has has been upon it? Anyone who would believe in a Big Bang theory of the origination of man or the origination of the universe is just flat out crazy. It doesn't need refutation. It is so stupid, it doesn't deserve refutation. Because order and design and beauty cannot be brought out of chaos with an explosion. Any more than if if you blew up the Greenville News uh, plant this night, would you expect in the morning to find on the sidewalk a bound, labeled, and shrink-wrapped copy of the Oxford English Dictionary because the paper in there happened to go together in that format. It's not worthy of even dealing with them. It's like the children that stood in the street and saw the emperor pass without any clothes and all the adults were serving one another to keep their position in society, but the little child cried out, but he has no clothes. Right. 
And so we have to say the same thing. It takes a million times. The f- Don't you know the story of the emperor and his clothes, everyone? You don't have to refute events, uh, theories like the Big Bang Theory. You don't have to refute the mutational theory of salamanders deciding to become bald eagles. It's insanity. It is, listen, they ridicule Europe 500 years ago because they thought the earth was flat and was held up on a platter by a monster. They ridicule that idea, but do you know what they think? That there was this little bit of some plasmic sauce floating through the universe and it decided to become a live, it decided to take on the form of life and then it took on a higher form of life and pretty soon it wanted to be a college student at UCLA. It's incredible. They want us to believe that but they want to make fun of the earth being flat and being held up by a monster. It's all ridiculous. But we open the Bible and the history is right there and the history makes sense. Amen. The history matches with everything we've ever known. When I read the history of the Bible and I get to chapter 3 and it talks about death, and I see men dying around me, there is no explanation for death except the Bibles. There is none. They do not know where death came from. Where did death come from? There doesn't have to be death. There does not have to be death. Where did death come from? The Bible explains it all. Every time I see death, I believe the Bible more. Every time I see someone believing a lie, I believe the Bible more because it says that men love to believe lies and that their hearts are prone to believe lies. Where did all the languages come in the world? Do you think Chinese and English came from the same source? I mean, that there was one language and they all just sort of mutated a little bit, and so one group of people ended up writing in symbols that would absolutely drive us crazy? Well, we use the English alphabet, and I'm not, make, I'm not saying one language is superior to the other, even though it is. I'm not saying that. Where did all those languages come from? Right. Where did they all, do, we, do you know where the languages came from? Amen. We know that the Bible is written by God because it gives us a history of everything that we can see in our world. They do not know where all the languages came from, and we do. Every time I hear this Russian up here in the front row speak in Russian, especially with her mother, I believe in the Tower of Babel. It encourages me in the Tower of Babel. I tell her that every time. You hear two Russians going at 90 miles an hour in Russian. And and if you can see them together, which which Heather arranged for her to meet a couple of other Russians here in this city and to see them going at it, and their faces reflecting that they're understanding each other, and they're making noises that you never thought would be a language anywhere. And, and they would think the same thing about us. True. They would think the same thing about us. English is not any, any better than Russian. <laughs> Where did it come from? God. You know, every time I hear it, and I love to hear it, so does the family. We'll gather around sometimes. The poor thing is trying to talk to her mother, and the whole family is just watching her. <laughs> because to hear that is proof that the Bible was written by God. Right. Because it gives an explanation that once there was an American at ground level, and there was a Russian 200 feet up, and there was a two-ton block of granite in between them on a rope. And the American said, the Englishman said, pull it up. And the Russian thought, let go. And it landed on the Englishman. And that's why they left off building the tower. And they all went their separate ways into all parts of the earth. The English people went over here, and they spoke English, and they bred among themselves, and so you had English-speaking people. And the Russians went this direction, the Chinese, until we had all these languages all around the world, 
And the Bible gives us the history of it. They don't know where it came from. We have it. I believe the Bible is the Word of God because it gives us a history of all that we can see in the world. You can, go, you can take a trip down the Grand Canyon. You, you can go to other places in the world. You can go look at mastodons that are buried up in Siberia with vegetation in their stomachs. And guess what else we can know? There was once a lot of water on this planet. We can believe in a worldwide flood. And we find out that all civilizations have had verbal histories passed down from generation of a worldwide flood that had horrible effects on the world before their nation came into existence. And we know where all those came from, don't we? Because the Bible is a history book of what's happened since God created the world. We read the Old Testament and we see the nation of Israel coming in contact with many different nations and kings. And then as archaeological digs are made and discoveries are found, what do we find out? But those kings and those nations that Israel came in contact with truly did exist. For hundreds of years, Bible believers were ridiculed for the for what the scriptures call the Hittites. But then in the last hundred years, they have found the Hittite civilization. We knew all along it was there because we have a history book written by God. It doesn't surprise us. Brethren, I've I've told you this one before, but this one is one of my pets. So you're going to have to hear it again. We We have 24 hours in a day because God determined that with the movement of the earth. We have approximately 28 to 30 days in a month because God determined that by the moon. We have 365 and a quarter days in a year because God determined that by the earth's movement around the sun. Where did we get a seven-day week? Where did the snake-worshipping Hindus get the idea of a seven-day week? Where did Islam get its seven-day week? Why did Confucius observe a seven-day week? It is by revelation alone and only from one book. And if you've ever worked, you'll know that seven days is just what a human needs. About the seventh day, if he's worked hard for six days in a row, he needs a break to be at utmost efficiency. And if he'll rest that seventh day, the eighth day, or the, the next week, he's ready to go again. It's true. The seventh day. Why is it that all nations and all languages have perpetually observed Brother, my outline is going to be different. It's going to have links that you're going to be able to click on if you want to and go to websites that have collected statements, this, this many, of scientists and historians who say that seven-day week has always been observed by all languages and all nations for as long as it can be studied backward. There's only one source. God established seven days in the very beginning when he created everything in six days and rested on the seventh. And then he gave that to the nation of Israel in 1500 B.C. with the law of Moses. They all observe it. God wrote this book. Because only in this book do we have the seven days laid down as a law. Only in this book do we know where the seven days came from, and the whole world observes it. I believe the Bible is the word of God because of its spirituality. It is elevated above personal greed. It's above national pride. Most of the writers of the Bible were Jews. What did they do to their own nation in most of their writings? Blasted it and condemned it. Isn't that something? Find me another book like that. You won't find Muhammad criticizing and condemning Arabian people. 
because the whole book of the Quran is to defend the Arabian culture. But in the Bible, we have Jews writing the vast majority of the material, but they're constantly criticizing and condemning their own nation and their own religion and the hypocrisy of their own people. And guess what? They also write about God blessing the Gentiles and bringing them in and taking the kingdom of God away from them and giving it to the Gentiles. Right. Now, it takes a pretty spiritual perspective on things to be able to write like that. True. There is no fleshly appetite in the Bible. You won't read about a heaven where every man gets 72 virgins that feed him wine and grapes on a couch in the shade. Remember? Yeah. You won't read that in the Bible because in the Bible it's constantly asking us to elevate our vision off of the plane of this earth toward heaven, Amen. toward spiritual things. It tells us to examine our hearts, not our bodies. It tells us that men are measured by what's on the inside, not by what's on the outside. It tells us that whatever is on the outside came from the inside. It tells us we need a work of God on the inside. It doesn't tell us we need a work of God on the outside. It doesn't tell us that ceremonial performance of worship is what's important. It tells us that having a broken heart is what's important. It tells us to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. It directs our love toward God, not toward anything else. God, primarily. It is spiritual in its perspective. In the Word of God, there isn't even the faint whiff of man's ambition or lust. There is no personal goal in the Word of God for any fleshly accomplishment for any man. It is spiritual in nature, which makes it very different from any other book. Amen. Prosperity and affliction. Now think, prosperity and affliction are both viewed as inferior distractions to eternal values. It doesn't teach us to choose poverty. It doesn't teach us to choose riches. It teaches us to find a convenient middle ground. Neither be a monk nor seek riches, but set your affection on things above and ask God for food convenient for you. Right. Now that's a different perspective, brethren. There's those that think anything physical is displeasing to God, so they want you to swear off anything in this life and make a vow of poverty. Then there are others that think that it's to be ambitious is to be a Christian, that gain is godliness. But here comes the Word of God, neither extreme, emphasizing the spiritual. It describes a God. It describes our God. This book does. This book describes God in the most sublime language and spiritual language possible. Right. What does it emphasize as his beauty? His holiness. Find me the God. Find me a book that describes God and emphasizes his holiness as his beauty. I dare you. The Bible presents God in the most sublime language and spiritual language possible, possessing transcendent holiness. Right. Holiness above what a man can even imagine without any human characteristics at all. Nothing like the Greek gods. Nothing like the Indian gods. Nothing like Muhammad's Allah. No human characteristics, except when he chooses to try to communicate himself to us, but he tells us that he is I am that I am, and that he exists above our plane of understanding. No human characteristics of weakness, of superstition, or natural tendencies in this being. The Bible declares it about God. It is a spiritual book. Therefore, I know it was written by the Spirit that is called God. The Bible is the Word of God because of its plainness. The speech of the Bible is direct, plain, powerful, concise, masculine, and intelligent. 
it accomplishes more in fewer words than any book that's ever been written. Just take a look at some of the vague generalities of some holy books and the transcendental hidden mysteries of others in which you can't understand or learn a thing. The Bible is unique, brethren. The Bible says more in fewer words than the writing of any man. The boldness of the Bible does, without equivocation, never is the Bible hesitant in declaring anything. The plainness and boldness and confidence of the Bible declarations about all subjects is unique. There is no book like that. The plainness of the Bible speech proves that it was written by God because no man can address subjects, all the subjects of the Bible, with such boldness and confidence like the Bible does. The strongest of words and the boldness of manners. The Bible is the word of God because of its reasonableness. The Bible is not afraid of examination. It begs for it. It's not hidden in monasteries or mosques away from the inspection of either friends or enemies. The Bible's waiting for you to examine it. It begs for consideration. I've shown you that. Search the scriptures, Jesus would say. Noble men, search the scriptures daily, as we read in Acts 17.11. It's a very reasonable book. Would an infinite God create two races of beings to show his election? One race of beings, but them separating themselves from him and becoming his enemies and electing some of them and leaving the others, showing mercy toward that first group and wrath toward the second, forgiveness and judgment, love and hatred, is that reasonable? That is very reasonable. That is very reasonable for an infinite being wanting to reveal himself to the universe to create man and to have the plan of salvation that the Bible declares. It's very reasonable. I know that the Bible is the word of God because of its reasonableness. When I read the works of other men, including the news for today, it's not reasonable. Whatever subject you want to take up, it's not reasonable compared to the Word of God. The Book of Mormon is ridiculous. It's got battles in there that were fought on the North American continent, supposedly, between the lost ten ten tribes of Israel, brethren, came across in little boats from Egypt all the way to America. They They populated the North American continent. That's where the Indians came from. They're the lost ten tribes. And they would fight each other, and when they would get to the end, there wouldn't be a single, a single man standing on either side. Now, is that a reasonable battle? <laughs> Not a single man standing on either side. You can read that over and over in a little novel called The Book of Mormon. How about the Koran? It says that the Christian trinity is God, Mary, and Jesus. Now, when did Christians ever believe that? That isn't reasonable. The testimony of the Bible about God about man, about life in this world, is too consistent with what we're able to see and know by the Spirit of God that it's very reasonable. The Bible is a reasonable book. Prove all things. You're able to prove it. It has an answer, and it hasn't been gainsayed in anything that it has said. The Bible talks about where we came from, what our purpose is, where we're going, why we die, how death is going to be defeated, what caused death how long we've been here. And all of it makes sense because it's reasonable. And no other book written by man is reasonable because you're going to quickly, usually the first page, run into something that is unreasonable. The Bible's explanation for all the difficult questions of life are so reasonable about marriage. Where did marriage come from? Cavemen sitting around the mouth of a cave figuring out that if they limited themselves to one woman... And she took his name and they used rings that that would be better than 
just having tribal relations? I mean, where do you think marriage came from? It came from the Bible, and it's all reasonable. Pain, suffering, sin, the flood, the worship of God, all of it is so reasonable in the Bible. Brethren, we believe the Bible is the Word of God because of its fruit. Wherever the Bible has gone, fruit has followed. Look at Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Do you know the Apostle Paul wrote the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 and he said, When ye received the word of God, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh in you that believe. Now, that's really another point that I'm going to get to some other time. Because it's, we believe the Bible is the word of God because of its power. It changes lives. Other books don't change lives. Not in the way the Bible changes lives. But I want you to see its fruit. Where the, do you know the Bible tells us to prove all things? And one of the things it tells us to prove is to check out the borders. Did you know that's in the Bible? To check out the borders. Can you see any difference from the border? The border of our nation. Yes. Yes. Can you see any difference from the border? The Bible speaks of seeing the mercy of God and the blessing of God from the borders of Israel. Because wherever that line went that separated between Israel and Moab, Israel and Edom, Israel and Egypt, there was a great difference. Because where the word of God goes, there's been abundant fruit. America is great. And we say that we're only here because of God's mercy. Statistically, we should be planting some rice in a rice paddy in China and riding a bike home and think that confusion is the name of our greatest thinker in the history of our nation. They call him Confucius sometimes, but his real name was Confusion. We are blessed abundantly, but there is fruit that follows the word of God. America is not great because we work harder than other people. America is not great because we're smarter than other people. America is great because for the time that this nation has been in existence, this word has been preached. The people that founded this nation came here because they were not allowed to believe and preach this Bible with complete liberty like they wanted to. And so they came here and they did it. And it was the foundation for a nation that could be called a Christian nation. It was viewed as such by the rest of the world. And this Bible has been preached in pulpits without their li- with, with complete liberty and without fear of punishment for the last couple of hundred years. There were some times where we were persecuted before our, 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 we actually became a nation. But I want you to see in Proverbs chapter 8 that blessings follow the word of God. Blessings follow where God's wisdom is. We see in verse 8, all the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing froward or perverse in them. Those are the words of God. Those are the words of the Bible. They are all plain to him that understandeth, and write to them that find knowledge. Receive my instruction, and not silver and knowledge, rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Now follow with me. Here are blessings that come where the word of God is allowed to reign, and be used, and preached, and read. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and find out knowledge of witty inventions. Our nation has been a nation of witty inventions. Where did those witty inventions come from? Because we had the wisdom of God in this nation. Because it frees men from superstition. You can go south south of our border. 
Go into the nation that borders us on, on Texas, the state of Texas. Yeah. You go down there and those people are limited because of their superstition. They believe that a priest gets up in their cathedrals and changes a cracker into God. And to believe that, you have to shut down your entire thinking apparatus. And so they, they have stolen from them by the Roman Catholic Church the creativity that results in witty inventions that come with the freedom of the Word of God. Right. Go anywhere in the world and see where Catholicism reigns and the people are in darkness. True. We call it the Dark Ages. Why do we call 1,200 years the Dark Ages? Because Rome was in charge of Europe. And during those 1,200 years, nothing happened. There came along a Reformation. And while we don't believe it's the Bible Reformation, at least it did throw off the yoke of Rome. And with the yoke of Rome being thrown off, men had the Bible in their own language again. While it was in Latin and the people couldn't read it, they were in gross darkness. When it was opened up to them, look what happened in the last 400 years in Europe. It's incredible, the change. But look what it says. We shouldn't be surprised. Verse 12, I wisdom dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. Verse 15, by me, kings reign and princes decree justice. We say in our pledge, liberty and justice for all. Where did that justice come from? By the wisdom of God's word. By me, princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. Look at the blessings that follow God's wisdom contained in His Word. If we had, if the Bible is just any holy book and not God's Word, these blessings that the Bible declares wouldn't have followed it. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is, why is America so great? Men have wanted to address that question for 200 years. They've said that we were a God-fearing people. But we look in the Word of God and we can see the answer. And we could continue to read all the way down through verse 21. And it describes about inheriting substance and filling up treasures is what happens to those that follow the Word of God. Where is liberty, justice, righteousness, equity, witty inventions, and other blessings of this chapter. Where are they in the world? They're in the United States more than anywhere else because in this country more than anywhere else, there were more pulpits preaching the word of God freely than anywhere else. What about the fruit of the Hindu Veda? Because their widows are willing to burn themselves to death at their husband's funeral, should we consider that good fruit of their holy books? Because the Muslims have to evangelize at the point of a sword, should we believe that that's good fruit that follows their holy book? Brethren, God has ignored most nations in his blessings. Do you realize that the Bible tells us that he chose the smallest of all nations and blessed them abundantly and ignored all the rest? What did they have that the rest didn't? That he said was their life and their righteousness, his law, his precepts and his statutes. America is great because we've exalted and honored this word. But you know what this nation is now doing. And so if this nation goes down as it should, it's because it no longer has exalted the word of God. Should we look for truth in a nation that worships dead relatives in the neighbor's cow? What kind of questions do I need to ask you? 
for you just to realize that we believe the Bible is the Word of God by its fruit. Look at the effect that the Bible has when it goes into a nation and it is believed and obeyed. May the Lord bless us to be a congregation of people that believe it and obey it for spiritual blessings to follow us by keeping His commandments because the Bible says in the keeping of them there is great reward. Amen. Psalm 19. May the Lord bless us to believe that the Bible is truly the Word of God and to read it more this week than you read it last week and to obey what you read this week more than you did last week. Right. And Jesus will be honored and I'll be have given my labor not in vain. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.